We're uh, back. It's oh, are we starting? <laughs> <laughs> We're back. It's episode nine of Biomechanics on Our Minds. Wow! Can you believe Folks, it? That means that, like, if we had gotten pregnant when we started this, we would have a baby <laughs> we, right now. We have a, <laughs> a baby. A boom baby. I'm Melissa, and I'm Hannah, and we are PhD students. At Stanford in bioengineering, and we have biomechanics on, on our minds. Welcome to Boom. Where we have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 We have a really fun interview today with Walter Herzog from. We did the interview at the. Why? (laughs) We did. We did the interview at the World Congress of Biomechanics conference in Dublin a few months ago, and he is such an awesome person, so I was really excited to talk to him, and he had some really fun things to say. Um, He talked a little bit about his research uh, regarding (laughs) osteoarthritis. Bless you. (laughs) Regarding... uh, You should probably just restart. (laughs) I know. I'm going to keep it in there. (laughs) Uh, tight, Hannah. Don't uh, push it. <laughs> uh, regarding osteoarthritis and the links to um, having a high fat, high sucrose diet to osteoarthritis, which I think is really interesting. And then he shares a little bit about people that he looked up to in the field of biomechanics, things that excited him, and even a little bit of trouble that he's gotten into whilst a student. So that was really fun to talk about. As always, we're going to start off with a bit of boom. A little bit of boom. A little bit of boom. <laughs> bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. So we're going to give a little bit of a background overview of muscle physiology and muscle contraction, and then um, talk a little bit in depth on two kind of contradicting theories of titan, which is a protein in muscle. So muscle as a whole is... um, an organ, right? So we have, um, we're going to talk about skeletal muscle in particular. So there's three different types of muscle. There is the heart muscle tissue, which is the muscle that makes up the heart. <laughs> there's smooth muscle, which lines organs like the intestines. And then there's skeletal muscle, which is the muscle that attaches to bone and, and uh, helps you move. <laughs> Hannah's moving a lot and demonstrating what skeletal muscles can do. Um, give you good dance moves. Yeah, I wish you could see me. I, so do I. <laughs> so starting at the organ level, you have skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is made up of bundles of muscle fibers. And then the muscle fibers themselves are bundles of myofibrils. And myofibrils are bundles of myofilaments. And so myofilaments are kind of the lo- a long strand of proteins And these proteins have a repeating pattern that together, two of the proteins together we call a sarcomere. A sarcomere is the smallest force-generating unit of muscle. So no other smaller unit of a sarcomere can generate force alone. 
And the two main proteins that are known to interact in a sarcomere for this important force-generating property are actin and myosin. Myosin is known as the thicker filament, usually, and actin is the thin filament. And the interaction between these two uh, proteins shortens uh, sarcomere, which shortens muscle as a whole and makes the muscle contract and generate force. And one way I kind of like to think about this, I don't know if you have other ways that you like to think about it, Hannah, but I, I, <laughs> I love muscle. <clears throat> I love thinking about it. <laughs> and sometimes I, I think, like, the way myosin has had these, like, heads that um, stick out from it and attach to actin and kind of, like, pull it along. So we call it the cross-bridge theory. Um, one way I like to think about it is like climbing up a rope ladder and um, where actin is the rope ladder and you as a person are myosin. And so you grab onto one of the rungs. Is it rung? Rung. Rung of the rope ladder to pull yourself up. So like how the myosin head like attaches to actin to pull it. Hmm. Um and I think this is also interesting because depending on how much myosin and actin are overlapping is how much force a muscle can generate. So if um, the more that they're overlapping, or the, like the bigger area of overlap between actin and myosin, the better. Um, and so at the beginning, they're not overlapped as much, but as myosin pulls it closer together, they become, they overlap more, and there's, like, more myosin heads can grab onto actin. Um, but then eventually it becomes too short and start <laughs> interfering with each other, and this causes a decrease in muscle forces. And so I kind of, I think it's kind of cool to picture, like, if you start climbing up a rope ladder with just your hands and your feet are dangling down, you like, can't generate... Um, that much force, like you're only using your arms. But then once both your arms and your legs are on the rope ladder, you can generate the most force until you get to the very top, and then let's say like, you can't use your hands anymore and can only use your legs again. Um, mm. So that's okay. just one way I've kind of been thinking about it. I don't know if anyone would agree. <laughs> Hopefully that's an accurate uh, metaphor, but... Yeah, so there's still a lot that's unknown about uh, muscle force generation. And actin and myosin, they interact during active muscle contraction. Um, and active muscle contraction is, is when we are telling our muscles to contract. Mm -hmm. But muscle also generates force in passive movements. So the passive component comes into play when your muscle is extending and getting longer. It can generate more force even when it's not active. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it can generate that force active, because the yeah. passive components are coming into play. Yeah. A lot of times it's compared to a spring. When you pull a spring, it generates force uh, when it gets longer. There's kind of these spring components mm -hmm. of muscle. Really, in the past, it's been thought that a third protein, Titan, is important in generating these passive Component. So Titan's been thought to be that spring-like protein that creates these passive forces. And Hannah and I are going to talk a little bit about two different perspectives on this and how this might be changing. Yeah. So the what Melissa just talked to us really nicely about was the uh, sliding filament theory of muscle contraction. And this has been the long-held theory of how muscles 
um, and this has been the long-held theory of how muscles generate forces, but in uh, 2014, Walter Herzog published a paper in the Journal of Experimental Biology arguing for a different theory that involves this third filament called Titan. And this theory sort of fills in some of the gaps from the two-filament sarcomere model that wasn't perfect because it didn't explain experimental observations in eccentric contractions or contractions that occur when the muscle's lengthening, which is what we were just trying to explain dur during the passive force generation. The two-filament model, however, did explain what happens during isometric and concentric contractions. That's when the muscle is contracting but staying the same length or shortening, respectively. So Walter, in this paper, argued for this third filament called Titan that's involved in force regulation of sarcomeres, and it does so by adjusting its stiffness in both a calcium-dependent and active force-dependent manner. So we talked about it sort of just like as a passive element, but it's actually playing a role in these active eccentric contractions. So how does Walter actually propose that it does this? He's saying that Titan increases the stiffness and force upon stretch of the active muscle by binding to calcium and actin when the cross-bridge interaction is happening because it's believed that during that cross-bridge interaction, there are certain sites freed, upon act freed up on actin that the Titan can then bind to. So Titan effectively shortens, and then this allows the muscle to generate more force upon stretch and upon muscle activation. Okay, cool. So he's proposing that when muscle's active, Titan binds to actin and then shortens. So when muscle's lengthening, it's able to then generate additional forces. Exactly, exactly. Cool. I think it's just been really hard to really get down to that level and mm. see what's happening when muscle is activated in the body at the molecular level. It hasn't really been done up to this point. Yeah. You wish that you had, like, Miss Frizzle's magic school bus to go <laughs> get down on that level and see what's going on. Exactly. Actually, just this, what month is it? So last month, in August, um, Rick Lieber and Gretchen Meyer published a short report in the Journal of Experimental Biology that questions the importance of Titan in the passive force generation in muscle in mammals. This was really interesting because it's contradictory to many of his previous studies. A lot of his studies previously agreed similarly on track with, with what you had talked about, with what Walter proposed. And this is because in a lot of the early studies on Titan, they were done in frog muscle, which is made up of mostly muscle fibers and little extracellular matrix. So they saw this passive force generation and thought, okay, this must be due to something that's happening in the fibers, and it's probably this extra protein called Titan. But in this study, they compared the passive force generation of the frog muscle with mouse muscle, and mouse muscle has a much higher percentage of the extracellular matrix. So in a fiber bundle with of mouse muscle, it's I think it looked like about like half and half, um, extracellular matrix and muscle fibers. And they actually found that the mouse muscle bundles had a 2.4-fold increase in the passive modulus when the sarcomeres are increasing versus just testing a fiber. So with the fiber bundle, they had like a much higher force-generating capability with the extracellular matrix um, than without. And 
in a frog muscle, which we said was mostly muscle fibers, its passive modulus remained the same throughout the full range of sarcomere lengths for both the fibers and the bundles. So this led them to the conclusion that the extracellular load-bearing by Titan is functionally important in the frog muscle, but not mouse muscle. And this could be because mouse muscle has a much more highly developed extracellular matrix, as most mammalian muscles do. That's super interesting. And the mouse has a more highly developed extracellular matrix than the frog. And is that because of different muscle requirements from the mouse, do you think? Or um, what do you think that um, difference is coming from? That's a really good question. I'm not really sure what would like require those differences between an amphibian and a mammalian muscle. Oh, yeah. But that's definitely something to think about because generally when there's a change in form, it's because of a function that it needs to right. adapt to. So that's something cool to think about. But, it's yeah, it's interesting to think about the differences at this fiber bundle level. That's awesome. So they're really shaking up the, shaking up the waters. <laughs> yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing just more experiments on Titan and muscle in general as, like, technologies improve and we keep being able to improve on these theories. It, it'll be really interesting. Well, now we will jump into our interview with Walter Herzog. Again, it's at the conference, and so I feel kind of bad that the quality isn't super great, but it was... Melissa did an amazing (laughs) job and put lots of really hard-earned hours of her life into... Trying to fix this interview. The audio on this interview. The yeah. content is amazing. Yeah, the content is great, and the quality wasn't great, and it made me really sad. But I've tried to edit out most of the the issues, and so um, it's well worth the listen. Yes. And stay tuned for some research fails at the end. today is Professor Walter Herzog, who is Faculty of Kinesiology and Department of Mechanical Engineering and Manufacturing Engineering at the University of Calgary. And your research is in the areas of muscle contraction mechanisms, mechanical properties of muscles, growth, healing, and adaptation of biological tissues. I was wondering if you could just first give a brief overview of what kind of research you do along those lines and what you're working on right now. Maybe just as a quick correction, I'm also yes. in the Faculty of Kinesiology, and uh, if I don't say that, then the people in kinesiology are going to be really <laughs> I think I meant to say kinesiology. I have it on here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we have, uh, I, I always think of our group having kind of two distinct topics of uh, musculoskeletal research, and as you mentioned, uh, one of them really dealing with joint biomechanics, and particularly as it relates to knee osteoarthritis. And then the second area is uh, um, what I would call mechanisms of muscle contraction, skeletal muscle contraction, and also muscle properties, mechanical properties of muscles. And so in the first area of the joint biomechanics, and uh, osteoarthritis, we have primarily developed a whole bunch of different animal models of 
osteoarthritis, knee osteoarthritis to be specific, to get a feeling what really the, uh, the development of osteoarthritis is, what, what some of the factors might be, how we might be able to intervene and potentially stop, reverse the disease, okay. which, uh, which is very difficult, it seems, or impossible at the moment. Nobody seems to be able to do that. And I started out doing work in that area about 25 years ago. And our first models were post-traumatic OA. So we did primarily anti-accrucial ligament transections in a variety of animals. We did that in mice and rabbits and cats. Mm-hmm. and then looked at the development, the different development in the different species. I also worked very closely with somebody who did anti-accrucial ligament transactions in dogs and cats, for example. Right. Uh, the whole uh, development of OA after ACL transaction is completely different. Uh, for example, the fascinating thing has always been to me that dogs never recover in their kinematics and kinetics from an anti-accrucial ligament transaction. They limp. Years and oh, years wow. after. Okay. The other cats, after four months or so, they were walk and run and climb and jump absolutely perfectly. You have absolutely no idea that they're then transaction. Another big difference is that in dogs, you immediately have changes to bone. In cats, you never see any changes to bone. So, all the people who always say, Do I see the bone? In the cat, yeah. it definitely does not. Yeah. In other animals, it might. But they, were, they still develop osteoarthritis. They at still develop rate. osteoarthritis. No, it takes much, much longer. Okay. We had once a whole series of animals that we followed. And before they have full fledged osteoarthritis and before they become symptomatic, that means before they start to limp, limp mm-hmm. it takes approximately 12 to 13 years in a cat, which is about two thirds of their yeah. lifetime. So it's a, it's a very long. Wow. Um, so did you have to follow these animals for... We followed some years. animals uh, up to 13 years yeah, after the crucial conditions. It was a very small cohort, but we did that with three animals. Wow. That we kept for that long, yeah. And then a little bit later on, we became interested in muscle weakness as a risk factor for osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. So that was about 14, 15 years ago when we started that work. And the way we did that, again, in a variety of different ways and in different animal models, but the primary model for us was uh, uh, using botulinum toxin type A or Botox that we injected selectively into the quadriceps muscles of uh, rabbits mm-hmm. and produced about a 70% weakness. So we left the rabbits with about 30% of their normal force. Okay. And then looked at uh, an ORC score, so a histological score of how much osteoarthritis these animals had. And when you induce that weakness, then uh, the gait patterns and the hopping patterns of these rabbits was essentially normal because they still had about 30% of their normal, of their natural force. Right. But nevertheless, at one month, uh, three months, and six months, when we followed them up, they all had osteoarthritis-like changes, particularly for the muscle weakness, particularly in the patellofemoral joint, less in the tibiofemoral joint. And then we had another model of muscle weakness where we selectively denervated uh, certain muscles in the quadriceps group. So, for example, we knocked out the vastus lateralis. And again, when you do that for one, three or six months, uh, the animals, the rabbits in this particular case, with this imbalance, all the other muscles were normal and in fact got bigger and stronger, but you have lost the vast lateralis. Uh, they also developed osteoarthritis, showing us that muscle weakness 
without any interference at all, muscle weakness or imbalance, uh, indeed in this animal model is uh, causing uh, you know, the onset and, and higher rate of progression of, of osteoarthritis. Right. So that was another big aspect of the work, muscle weakness and, and imbalance. And then really recently, in the last six or seven years now, we started looking at, um, at obesity and metabolic syndrome as a risk factor for osteoarthritis. And so we developed this uh, rat model, Sprague Dolly rats, that we feed with a high-fat, high-sucrose diet. Okay. They become, some of them become very big. Mm -hmm. They all increase tremendously in the subcutaneous fats and their body fat percentages will range anywhere between about 40 to 55% after 12 wow. weeks on that diet, whereas a normal rat is more in the 25 to 30%. So fats are relatively fat, a little bit fatter than humans in terms of the body fat percentage. But these animals are clearly fatter and heavier and everything. Yeah. And they develop, uh, they develop in knee osteoarthritis at a very fast rate as well. Again, okay. no intervention, just making them big yeah. and compare them to a control group that have a regular a regular diet. And do you think that's due to both differences in having additional forces on their knees, but then also probably nutrition as well? Do you think um, nutrition has anything to do with the development of it? We, we think it's primarily the nutrition and yeah. not the weight. And there's two reasons for that because there is a what, what people call obesity-prone and obesity-resistant animals to this high-fat, high-sucrose diet. Mm -hmm. And obesity-prone and obesity-resistant is not really a good, it's not really a good uh, explanation because they all become obese, they all have increased fat. I would call them weight-prone and weight-resistant okay. because some of the animals that you had had similar weights in the high-fat, high-sucrose group compared to the controls. Okay. But they had a much higher fat percentage, so they lost lean body mass and gained body fat. Okay. So the weight was the same, but, but they had a much higher fat percentage, and they developed osteoarthritis in the knee, and the controls did not. So we have control, and we have animals of similar weight oh, wow. that behave okay. very differently. And then the other thing is that if anything at all in the very fat animals, the legs actually get unloaded because when a, a, a rat has about 50 or 55% body fat, which mm -hmm. quite often we get, their belly touches the ground and they really don't use the legs anymore very much to support the body weight. But it's almost yeah. like, like rowing or canoeing. They use their legs to paddle and they, and they move themselves on their belly. Oh, across wow. the floor, okay. so so they they actually don't load the joints. Okay. <laughs> so if anything at all, in these very fat animals, where we wanted to measure ground reaction forces, we couldn't because much of their body weight is then supported by by their by their belly. Yeah. And so 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 we think therefore very strongly that body weight or the gaining body weight has very little to do, or the additional load because of the additional body weight has very little to do. Is the onset of osteoarthritis and the, and the, the increased body fat has it, uh, does it know? Okay. When we did that, we also find that in these animals they have a global inflammation, so we, we look for inflammation markers in the blood. Mm -hmm. So they have systemic low level inflammation, these, these fat animals, and they also have a completely changed gut microbiome. And the gut microbiome changes in such a way that they 
gut cells mm-hmm. don't close tightly anymore. And so you have leakage of yeah. polysaccharide, polysaccharides into the system and causing you know additional damage, we think additional inflammation. Okay. And, uh, and and so we think that's that's a big part of the of the of the disease. So really it's a, the metabolic change due to the diet and obesity rather than the additional weight. And we did a, another study that's out for publication right now, it's not published yet. Uh, it's a, a new student and she combined the high fat, high sucrose diet with an aerobic exercise intervention, very mild, 30 minutes of walking daily. Yes. These rats. Yeah. And also there's an uh, oligofructose prebiotic fiber supplement. Okay. So the high fat, high sucrose diet was now supplemented with 10% of this prebiotic fiber. Okay. And when we did that, uh, new osteoarthritis was completely eliminated. So we did that for 12 weeks and we started the high fat, high sucrose diet and we simultaneously started the exercise and we simultaneously started the prebiotic fiber and also combination of the two. Yeah. And when you do that, so the interventions, the exercise and the fiber uh, eliminated the osteoarthritis despite the fact that the animals were still fatter than control. They were not as fat as the non-intervention animals that got the high fat, high sucrose diet. Right. But they were still much fatter in terms of percent body fat than the controls. But they had no metabolic syndrome indication, no uh, inflammation local or global. And uh, so despite the fact that they were big, bigger than normal rats, so we call them the healthy fat animals. Okay. Because metabolically they seem to be healthy. Yeah. But they're still overweight and they're still over fat in terms of about 45%. But then that protects their joints. Okay. That protects their joints, yeah. 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 Um, And... That's really, it's, you can learn so much from an animal model and that you couldn't do a study like that in human. How translatable do you think that is to um, human health? Do you think it would be really representative of what's going on? Yeah. We think it's very translatable. We have a collaborator, Raylene Reimer, mm-hmm. from kinesiology at the, at the University of Calgary. And she actually does exactly that work. On the human level, she can't be as invasive, and obviously you cannot get histology of the joints afterwards because, because obviously the people uh, remain alive. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she does prebiotic fiber intervention, and now with us, uh, she does also exercise interventions in obese people that have knee osteoarthritis. And so we, we essentially are right now um, kind of combining these studies. And of course, she has already found that the prebiotic fiber Mm-hmm. It's very good at regulating uh, body fat composition and also reducing weight. But she has never looked at the musculoskeletal system. So this will be the first time where she does an intervention study with humans yeah. that have telgrane Barnes exposure of two or three in the knee joint. So mild to moderate osteoarthritis in the knee joint and then see whether or not the prebiotic fiber and the exercise not only regulates the metabolic disturbance in the body, but then also helps in the development or in stopping uh, slowing down the osteoarthritis. So, so we are right now translating this. And when I say we, uh, you know, in the animal studies, I'm kind of the PI and dictate what happens and everything. And she helps yeah. me. And in this study, the translation study, so the way around, she does it. 
and she got the money for it and everything and, and we provide we provide the mechanical and the strengthening and the exercise intervention uh, expertise so so right. we're doing that right now we think it might it might help but we don't know that yet in all of your research it seems that it's important to you to have multi-scale studies and i was wondering if you could comment a little bit on the importance of that in biomechanics i, I think it's very important and maybe i can explain that more on the muscle work that we do but before they go mm-hmm. there you're right we we, we look at the uh, I think we were the first ones to probably uh, characterize the dynamic deformation of chondrocytes inside a knee joint of a living animal as muscles contract and the joint is loaded. That was my postdoc, Sierra Buzara, probably published it about six or seven years ago. And so we think it's very important to understand you know, what happens to tissue, what happens to cells, what happens to the proteoglycan alignment, what happens to the matrix alignment and the extracellular matrix and all those type of things. As the tissue is loaded as a whole, I'm, I'm a very firm believer in the multi-scale approach and I'm very much a believer of working with the tissue in its native environment. So, so we have done very little work of characterizing cottage plants and, and isolated cells, but we have always tried to drive observing cartilage in the knee joint of life animals and the mechanical environment in walking and freely moving animal animals. It's always been very important to us. So kind of a, a shift to sure. um, a little bit of some less technical questions. Sure. Um, many students and research in the field look up to you and I was wondering who you look up to in science or biomechanics. Well, I think my absolute hero was uh, Andrew Huxley, and uh, I think he did more for uh, muscle physiology in the 20th century than anybody else. And uh, I invited Andrew uh, in 1999, when he was already 82 years old, to a, a symposium up in Canberra, a muscle symposium, and he stayed there uh, for a total of about two and a half weeks, uh, one week at the conference and then another yeah. week and a half with me. Uh, at my place and we chatted and uh, and you know he has he has thought so much about muscles and he had so many interesting ideas and he was 82 years old and you know obviously he was the one with the sliding filament theory he was the one that first formulated mathematical crossfit theory yeah and so i have read like every single article about 20 times that he's ever written I love his book uh, in 1980, Reflections on Muscles. It's not only a muscle book, but it's a very philosophical book as well. So I thought he was a very deep thinker, a very thorough man, a gentleman, very kind. And at that time, you know, in 1999, he was 20 years younger, so I was still like more at the beginning of my career and fully accepted uh, the discussions that we had. And so... That was 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 an incredible experience. And even before I met him, but when I met him, that really became uh, really became my hero. But I remember very distinctly I wanted him to come to the ISB meeting in 1999 and to my little, little muscle symposium the day, the yeah. couple of days before. And uh, that was, you know, meeting him uh, is clearly uh, the highlight of my scientific career. And, you know, the fact that he wrote articles in 1954 and in 1957 and now 56 years later are still yeah. cited daily. Yeah, you know, I mean, to me, that's uh, that's if, if there was one article of mine that in sixty years would still be cited, then uh, then I would be very proud and happy. <laughs> you know, so, so that's uh, so so. Yeah, 
but just the, the personality, you know, the, the, the thoroughness he had, the, uh, the kindness, uh, and, and really, yeah, the, kind of a complete and deep understanding that I thought was very, very impressive. And the curiosity at 82 years, still coming to meetings like that, still going to buy physics society yeah. meeting, asking questions, being there, being relevant, and, uh, and that, you know, that was very impressive. Yeah. So he's clearly, scientifically speaking, he's clearly my hero. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know I've read some of his articles, but it's really nice to hear a little bit about him as a person from you. Yeah. One of your students suggested that I ask you if you've always been a good student or if you've ever been in trouble as a student. I've, <laughs> I've been... I, I, I was a very mediocre student. Uh, in terms of grades, uh, through elementary school and high school and undergraduate uh, training, I I was a very I, I had grades that were clearly passing and never got me into trouble, but I was yeah. clearly not the best of the class in that type of thing. And and I think a lot of that was that uh, that it, it I was not really I, I always liked school and loved school and wanted to go to university. It was not something that I felt, you know, was particularly relevant or I really needed to do well. And I think part of that is also the Swiss system where when you get a high school graduation, you're guaranteed that you can study anything you want. So I could I could have gone to medical school, I could have gone into engineering or something. So 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 in Switzerland it only matters that you pass one level than the next and then if you pass, you're good. Right. If you pass with the highest grade or just with a passing grade, it's completely irrelevant. And scholarships, okay. and scholarships, for example, at Swiss universities are given by need. So if you have rich parents, okay. it doesn't matter if you are Einstein, you're never going to get a scholarship. Yeah. But if you are just a student that's just barely passed and barely made it in, but your parents are below a certain level of income, then you will automatically get a, get a scholarship. So the system is a very different one compared to Canada. Yeah. Their grades are used to get you a, a job or get you a scholarship or that type of thing. So right. it really was not required to be good as yeah. long as you were good enough. And that that all changed when I went to graduate school in the United States to Chinghe and they wanted to do biomechanics. Then all of a sudden I was uh, intrigued and I wanted to know and I wanted to learn and I wanted to be good and uh, yeah. and I, I, I took a full set of engineering courses I took in my master's and PhD. I took 26, I think it was 25 or 26 classes in engineering and mathematics. Wow. And I think I got straight A's except for one where we had a group, a group work. Oh, not in the group project. So, so all of a sudden, all of a sudden I worked hard and wanted to do well and, wanted, and, and, and that type of thing. Um, Whereas before, you know, I always tell people I never really studied for exams. I never yeah. stayed up late at night to prepare for an exam. Um, I, I think my oldest son reminds me a little of me. My oldest son is now doing a PhD, and his entire life he has never taken a single note in any class. He, he just sits there and watches and watches the birds, and, and uh, somehow he got him. Into, into a PhD despite the fact that he never studied for an exam yeah. really never did any homework and never takes any notes he just absorbs it somehow and, yeah. and I was not as extreme <laughs> but I was a bit like that fairly indifferent to what was happening as long as I understood what's going on roughly then I was happy with that yeah so uh, 
And uh, yeah, then, yeah. So I was once in trouble in high school, and I was actually uh, I was actually thrown out of high school for a few days. You were <laughs> not uh, based in academics. <laughs> sounds like a good story. It sounds like a really good story, and it's uh, kind of you know what super teenage boys do sometimes when they yeah. play a prank and. Yeah. Fortunately, my homeroom teacher stood up for me and said, no, he's actually a good guy. <laughs> so I was uh, once in trouble where very, very appeared and I might actually be uh, from another high school, which means in Switzerland, that means you can't go to university, of course. Oh, wow. So if that would have stood up, then I would never go to university. Yeah. So. Don't we have any more details on what that prank might have been? <laughs> <laughs> It's really embarrassing, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's 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 probably not as embarrassing at the time. But I think in today's world, <laughs> in today's world, is probably not appropriate anymore. Okay. But, uh, I'll tell you in private. Okay, offline. Yeah. Um, I know you're a big skier, and I was wondering how. Many kilometers would you say you ski per week in the winter? I'm not sure if I ski a lot of distance, okay. but I ski in the winter when I'm home and not traveling, and I usually ski four or five times a week. And oh, wow. when I ski, this is cross-country skiing. Okay. When I cross-country ski, I usually ski somewhere between one and a half and two hours. And if the conditions are nice, let's say you have fast snow, yeah. then I cover about 15 kilometers or so per hour. So uh, two hours would be around 30 kilometers times yeah. five or four or five times would be 120, 150, maybe 120, 130 kilometers a week on average. Yeah. Are there a lot of places to go cross-country skiing? No, I have a place uh, in the mountains, so it's about an hour from the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Canmore, and that's where the Canmore Nordic Center is, where they used to have, where they had the Olympic cross country skiing in 1988. And so, really, when I say I ski five times, what I do is I leave the office on Friday afternoon, and then I go for a night ski on Friday evening, then I ski on Saturday and Sunday, and then I usually and then I usually ski Monday morning before okay. I go to school. <laughs> so I get to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah. So I'm usually getting up about 5 or 5.30 and ski an hour, an hour and a half before I teach at yeah. night. <laughs> and then I usually go up on Wednesday evenings to Canada and ski with a master's group. So when I ski Friday, oh, wow. Saturday, Sunday, Monday morning, then Wednesday. Wednesday. So that's, that's, that's yeah. what I... That's great. Yeah, I love it. Uh, so there's two questions that we usually end the podcast with. Sure. The first is um, if you had a research fail, is what we're calling it. So something that's happened that wasn't as expected, um, and we try to make light of it or hear what you've learned from that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if you ever can fail in the research. Yeah. But I have many things that were. Their research and experiment came out completely differently mm-hmm. uh, than I expected. And I talked about it a little bit about uh, my ISB and my, uh, my Nybridge lecture. That, yeah. uh, that, that some of these experiments that turned out to be completely with a different result, they were actually at the end, they turned out to be most exciting. 
But I, I also have things that I said 20 years ago or 25 years ago mm-hmm. that, that I, I'm pretty sure are wrong. So I have this very interesting paper that I published on nonlinear optimization using master force prediction uh, from 1991 to 1992. And I cite myself often, uh, this paper, and I cite myself negatively. I will say, in yeah. 1992 or whatever, said, but we really don't think that's correct anymore. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I cite myself negatively. Yeah. Say. So, uh, so yeah. and, and, you know, and, and I, I tell my students and other people that a lot that I think if you do true science, then I think your understanding changes all the time, and therefore what is true for you changes all the time. So, for example, my perception of how muscle contracts now is a completely different one than 20 years ago mm-hmm. and I think about it very differently now and some of the things that I would have said 20 or 25 years ago I don't think are really relevant anymore or correct anymore and so to me um, you know when people ask me so what is true or truth in science I say well it's whatever you believe in right now whatever the paradigm is yeah. but, uh, but I'm fairly certain that in 500 years from now we will look back at people you know now in 2018 and they'll say oh my god did they really believe that did they really think about it that way so I, I believe in 500 years in truth and scientific understanding of our natural environment will be completely different one day now and right. people in 500 years will look back at us like we look back at people that lived in 1450 or in 1550 you know with the earth in the center of the universe and the planets going in a circular path around it. And despite the fact that that was an engineering model yeah. that predicted uh, lunar eclipses and solar eclipses actually to within a couple of minutes, hundreds of years in advance. So from an engineering point of view, it was an incredibly highly predictive, accurate model. Right. But a completely wrong, completely wrong mechanism, you know, that the underlying, the underpinnings of it were completely wrong. Yeah. And that always fascinates me that, you know, 500 years ago they believed that. And, and, and there was very, very good evidence that, and very accurate predictions. And, and then, you know, now it's all my goodness, you know. How, yeah. How could, they, how could they think that we are the center of the universe and everything revolves around us? You know, there was, you know, this little speck of dust was little meaning. And I'm convinced that will happen in 500 years again that people, people look at us and in all aspects of work that we do. You know, to me, uh, the one that I like to mention is all, all this cancer therapy, you know, radiation therapy and chemotherapy. It's not going to take long, maybe 50 years or 100 years, and people will look back at them and say, oh my God, how could people do that to each other? You know, how could they, how could they subject people to chemotherapy that makes them so sick and yeah. destroys their body and destroys their healthy cells and so on? So I, I, they will look back at us and say, we will complete our barbarians, I'm sure. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that example before. Yeah, I well, you know, if you know a couple of people who run the down with oh, radio yeah, or chemotherapy, absolutely. It's, then that, that, that's a terrible ordeal for, at least yeah. for, for the people that I know. It's, a, it's incredible, it's incredible hardship, and you lose all strength, and you have no energy anymore, and your hair fall out, and you're weak, and yeah, yeah, so and, yeah. and you fall up, and... <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, it's really terrible. It reminds me of a professor that I had um, uh, who once said that he hopes that all of 
his research is proven wrong eventually because that means that we'll get to a point where we know more and can prove it wrong and I thought that was an interesting thing to say. I, I would even go a step further and say I'm not only hoping that my research will be proven wrong I know you know, <laughs> I know yeah. everything that I'm saying today in, in, I don't know how long it'll take but in 50 years or 100 or in 500 years it will not be true anymore Yeah. because you know and understand things so much better what would you say you're most excited for in the field of biomechanics? I and my students know that. I, you know, I, I do work in a variety of different fields, but my my love is the molecular mechanisms of muscle contraction. Yeah. Um, uh, if I would want to make one contribution to the field that I'm known for, I would hope that at one point Titan will be incorporated as a, a molecule in on, in, you know, in a sarcoma representation that actually not only plays a passive role but also plays a certain active role in the sense that it changes and influences yeah. social regulation in muscle and, and I think that will come and if I would be partially acknowledged for having helped to contribute to that understanding that that, that would be great and that, that's really I, I before I retire I would love to know more about how that exactly works in the molecular mechanism so yeah. I'm at the bottom of my heart, I'm a completely basic scientist. I don't even care if it has any application. <laughs> Which is really interesting because, you know, Julie Steele just talked about how she needs to translate and needs to bring yeah. I don't have that desire at all. I, yeah. I want to understand um, that particular aspect of it, how it works on a molecular level. And if then that might be useful for something. That's okay, but somebody else can do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to understand it. So. Yeah, I've been actually studying muscle a lot more, and I found the molecular uh, mechanism so fascinating and that there's still so much to learn. And I gave a lecture about it, and I'll make sure in the future to always include Titan in my um, sarcomere schematics, but I usually do. <laughs> but the, other, the other thing that's nice about studying muscles is that we have a paradigm, you know? Yeah. You know, in 1957, Huxley wrote down, that's how it works. And you can write a mathematical equation, you can check it exactly against it. There's very few areas, in fact, you know, I'm always hard pressed to find other areas in biomechanics where we have a very clear um, paradigm that's mathematically formulated. You know, like for osteoarthritis, the other area that I'm doing, you don't have that. Yeah. There's not, there's not a, a consensus that 95% of the people believe in that there's a mathematical framework. Yeah. This is how OA develops. This is how. And I find that very, very uh, satisfying and good that in that one area, in the muscle contraction mechanism area, you're more like physics or biology or chemistry, where you have very distinct paradigms and models of how a molecule works, how an atom works, how particle right. physics works. And, and in biomechanics, we, we, we don't really have that very much. And, uh, yeah. And that, that makes it. I think very fascinating as well. Yeah. That you can you, um, I know you mentioned um, looking at these properties in active muscle, and I was wondering how you um, are able to test what's going on and do experiments in, on active muscle. You mean like in human muscle? Yeah. So, well, there, there we look at things on a completely different yeah. level. We can't yeah. really say much about, let's say, tightening the. But we can do experiments in human muscle and look at muscle properties of force lengths, force velocity, and, and residual force enhancement, yeah. force depression properties. And we know how on the whole muscle level they should behave 
And so therefore, when people move in our apparatus in our laboratory, mm-hmm. we should be able to make certain predictions about how it should come out and then say, okay, if on the molecular level it really works that way, it's tight, it really works that way, then on the human level we should see this so we can make right. a big global comparison. But I'm not a believer in doing human experiments. Some people do human experiments and, and, then, and, then, and then calculate down or, or some people have made predictions about molecular mechanisms of contraction but have never really worked on the single fiber level. And to me, that's, that's very dangerous right? Right. because the jump is really too far, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for talking with us. It's been a great talk. And, um, yeah, I'm really excited to share it with the students listening. Great. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Research fails. Do you have any fails? Um, I literally failed my final. <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> that does count. It was a f- I failed, but but it ended up being okay. I still passed the the class. Mm. But I think it counts as a fail. It definitely counts. Yeah. Should we celebrate? I feel like we should like. Have you ever played those like games where you? celebrate when you fail at the end yeah i've done that in the improv class whenever we messed up we were doing like a handshake and we messed up yeah we would celebrate and it made it really fun let's celebrate um it's okay to celebrate because i still really enjoyed the class and i learned a lot it's contradictory to what my i don't know how you (laughs) you always knew what you were talking about when you helped me um yeah so that's what's up with me I don't have any research fails right now because I'm working on developing a new research project, which has been really fun, actually, just brainstorming a ton of different projects and narrowing them down and figuring out where there's a need and what's been known and unknown, and, and that's been a really cool process that maybe we'll talk about another time. Yeah, what great. about you, Hey? Well, so uh, this is a research fail from a conference that happened probably about a year ago, but that I had just completely forgotten about, and until today, when it happened to get... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. I think I know what one you're talking about, and it's a real gem. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were at this gate. I drove with you to this conference. Anyway, so I was... We were at our bio... Our, oh, that's right. Yeah. Sorry, I'm picturing it in my head right now. <laughs> or, like, I'm picturing you telling me when it, right after it happened. Right after it happened. Because I probably, like, ran away from the scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, basically, we have, like, this giant departmental retreat that's at this really awesome place in California. And it's very relaxing. It's by the ocean. Everyone's in a good mood. There's lots mm-hmm. of free food. So I'm sitting at breakfast on the first day of the retreat. We've just gotten there. We're just having some hot chocolate and coffee on the couch with some professors, some students, and somehow, oh, I know what happened. So I had put hot chocolate in my coffee, and it, like, hadn't, I hadn't stirred it correctly. So there were those, like, little chunks in the bottom. Right, yeah. And so I took a sip, and, like, one of the chunks... Well, lo and behold, came right up and straight to the back of my throat. And I would just, like, kind of get that, like, dry, like, choking feeling and literally choked. 
I'm trying not to laugh because spitting. it's not funny that you were choking. It's not that funny that I was choking, but it's funny where the choking led to. <laughs> so I just ended up basically spewing my hot chocolate all over the person sitting next to me, which was a very prestigious faculty member <laughs> in our department. And thankfully, she was so kind. She just like was like, are you okay? And she wasn't concerned that she had hot chocolate all over her very nice, like, conferency outfit. And then I was trying to help her, like, clean it up because by then I was just, like, morbidly um, embarrassed. And I, she was, she was just, like, so gracious. And she was like, this is why I wear black. <laughs> and she, yeah, she was in all black. So, and you couldn't even tell. So now I've learned that, you should, one, stir your hot chocolate really well. Two, you should wear black <laughs> to conferences. <laughs> so that was a lot of great failing and great learnings in that day. And the rest of the conference was great. So Yeah, that's but, a classic. You know, gotta love it. Got to love it. That's a wrap for episode nine. Woo-woo! Really excited for next month's next episode. Next month, look out. Mark your calendar. <laughs> we will have a special episode for the month of October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month in the U.S. And so we have a special dedicated episode for that, which will be really fun. If you are interested in joining the International Society of Biomechanics, please join. You can become a member at isbweb.org, which is the International Society of Biomechanics website. And we have the ISB 2019 conference in Calgary that you can register for at isb2019.com. You can follow the International Society of Biomechanics on Facebook and on Twitter Twitter. 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 And on Twitter at IS Biomechanics. Yeah, thanks all for listening. We love our Boom supporters. <gasps> yeah, special shout out to all the graduate students listening to this. Yeah, it's September, new academic year. The leaves are changing. Yeah. At least in some parts of the country. You got this. You got this. Biomechanics off our minds. That's a wrap. That's all, folks.